Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning's reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, and James and John, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go out to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went out through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It's good to see you. Uh, My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to open the word with you and for you this morning. So if you're not there already, would you turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you've been with us the past several weeks, uh, we've begun a new series um, through the book of Mark. This is where we'll spend the lion's share uh, of this year. We'll take a couple breaks here and there for some um, different topical things that we want to discuss, but but we'll spend the lion's share of our year um, in the book of Mark. And what I love about this book is that it forces us to come face to face with Jesus. It It forces us to come to grips with the God of the universe stepping into time for us. And as we think about what the gospel is, I mean, we can define the gospel in a lot of different ways, and we'll talk about different elements of that throughout the course of this series. But in particular, one of the things that the gospel forces us to come to grips with, and one of the, thing that, one of the things that ex- expositional preaching, where we work through a book, forces us to come to, grip, come to grips with, is that picture of who God is. To have a holistic picture of our God, the Trinitarian God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of whom we see in this passage this morning. It forces us to see Christ for who He is and respond to Him in kind. And so as we've been talking about this, last week uh, Dave preached for us, and the passage that he covered in specific talked about the idea that when Jesus came, He came to bring the kingdom. 
That he was coming to bring in the flesh, in his humanity, all the perfection that God ultimately will bring into this world. That he was bringing spiritual transformation and life abundant and free. That he was bringing freedom from sin. That he was bringing a whole new regime. That the world as we knew it was being turned upside down. And that in, that in being turned upside down, what was, really being, what was really happening is the world was being set right. That our view outside of God is actually the view that is broken, twisted, deformed, and that we needed Christ to usher in the kingdom to begin that work of transformation. So last week, the text that we talked about, Jesus ultimately said the kingdom of God is at hand. And so that sermon ended last week with Dave saying that when when Christ came and ultimately called those first disciples to himself, the call that he gave to them is the same call that he gives to us. Repent, believe, believe and follow, that that call is for everyone. Regardless of your vocation, regardless of your background or your experience, that that call has been extended to all of us. And so the question that then occurs to us is why should we follow? What is it about this person, this Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus, what is it about him that demands ultimately us to follow? And Mark's answer for us in this morning is that the reason we are to follow is that Jesus has the power and he knows the way. We can trust Jesus in following him because he has the power and he knows the way. A couple of years ago, Jessica and I had the opportunity to, um, to get away, um, to leave our boys with our in-laws and go down to Mexico um, for a vacation. It was our first time in Mexico, and it was a really amazing trip. But one of the things that Jessica and I realized over the years that we have to figure out is we have to figure out how to actually vacation with each other because we vacation very differently. Like when I think about vacation, I think about uh, relaxation, and we relax very differently, Jessica and I. For me, relaxation uh, on a vacation is sitting on a beach um, with a cold drink and, and a good book and sitting there and enjoying the beauty of God's creation and being alone in the stillness and enjoying the warmth of the sun and all of those sorts of things. And for me, an excursion is figuring out where to have dinner. Like that's as much as I want to think about anything that we're going to do. And Jessica is the polar opposite of me. I mean, she wants to dive into the culture. She wants to get lost uh, in the area that we're visiting. She wants to go everywhere, see everything. In other words, her vision of relaxing is to not relax. And so we figured out over the years kind of this method where we, where we kind of break up the week and we're able to do both things. And so uh, on Jessica's day, the busy day, the non-relaxing day, what we chose to do um, was to head out of the city in which we were staying, which is Puerto Vallarta, and head uh, off into the countryside. So we get an Uber and we start driving to the point where I'm no longer seeing buildings and all I'm seeing around us is, uh, is trees and ultimately jungle. And I can still see the ocean uh, a little bit, which is comforting because it gives me a little bit of sense of bearing. But all of a sudden I realized we're 25, 30 miles from the place we were staying, and there are no more tourists where we are. It's just us. And it is obvious that we are tourists. I mean, we stand out like a sore thumb. So we arrive at this destination that Jessica had found for us, and we begin walking uh, this trail through the jungle next to the ocean. And, and as we're walking on this path, we don't see anybody that looks like us, acts like us, speaks the same language. We're so clearly tourists in this area. And, and, and pretty soon, I mean, in my sense of things, we were getting lost. I had no idea where we were. Jessica, I think, feigned that she knew where we were, but I don't think she had any clue either. She was just acting confident for me because I'm the relaxation guy on the beach. That's my role in our marriage, you know? So we're walking through this jungle, and ultimately we come into a clearing, and we realize that, that this pathway leads straight through someone's backyard. 
And there's this elderly Mexican woman sitting at a table with a machete and a chicken. And I am so out of sorts. I don't know what to do with this scene. And so we just keep on the path. And ultimately, we find ourselves in this little seaside town. And we find a a gentleman there who had a water taxi. And so we negotiated a raid and hopped on his boat. And imagine the relief that flooded over me in that moment when I realized here is someone who has the power and the ability to get us where we need to go and who knows the way to get there. Now, the illustration's ruined in that he later shook us down for a couple hundred more pesos just to get to the location we were going, and Jesus fortunately doesn't do that. But, but despite all of those things, what we find in this person of Jesus is someone who has the power to get us where we need to go, who has the power over everything else in creation, over the spiritual, over the physical, and on top of that, he knows the way to get there. And Jesus in this text is going to show us what it looks like when the kingdom of God is at hand. What does it look like when you encounter the kingdom on earth? And look what it says beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus and the disciples head into this village called Capernaum. This is a a medium-sized city. There was a Roman presence there. Uh, It's a fairly large trade city. This is the home of Peter and Andrew. And as they walk into the city, it's the Sabbath day. And so according to custom, as we find out in Luke, I think it's chapter 6, Jesus' custom on the Sabbath was to make his way into the synagogue. And as they come into the synagogue, an opportunity is given for Jesus to teach. And so he stands up and begins to teach. He begins to proclaim the gospel. And as soon as he opens his mouth, everyone in that room realizes there is something different about this message. This is a message we haven't heard before. And the way he delivers it is inherently different than any other message that we've heard. And the way that this is described in this text is that he spoke as one who had authority. And that word authority, as it's translated in your Bible, literally means out of the original stuff. It's this kind of odd phrase, but what it's referring to is this idea that the authority Jesus had in this moment was not derived from somebody else. It wasn't derived from a book or an interpretation. It wasn't arrived by oral tradition. That when he spoke, he spoke with the authority of the author. The authority that he had was original, dependent on nobody and nothing else. And as he spoke, these people's understanding of Scripture is being blown apart. Their view of the gospel is being transformed, and they're shocked at this message. Who is this one who doesn't speak in this sort of derivative influence or authority like the scribes? where he's not just trying to bring clarity, though certainly he does that, and he's not just trying to bring a new interpretation, though certainly he did that, but he speaks with the power and the authority of the one who is the author himself. Jesus, in this moment, is explaining the story of their lives to them as the one who was the author of it. And after all, this is God with us the Emmanuel, the Messiah. 
the listeners are astonished and immediately in this authoritative gospel declaration of Jesus Christ, something is triggered in the heart and life of one individual. Look what it says, verse 23. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Imagine being in this gathering. This is a church service. Imagine sitting in this place, hearing this message, and all of a sudden in the back of the room, someone stands up and begins to shout at the speaker. I mean, I've been in rooms where people have said things while I've been preaching, and not just an amen here and there, but where they've actually contradicted. I can tell you it's an incredibly uncomfortable thing to have happen, so please don't do that. But in this moment, look what's happening. I mean, in this moment, the spirit within this man cries out, you are the God, the Holy One, and we don't know anything about who this man is. I mean, for all we know, this was this guy's first time in the synagogue. It was his first time walking into the room. Or maybe he was a regular attender who had heard the dead old message of the scribes over and over again, so lacking in power and gospel exposition that he was able to leave each week unaffected. The truth is we don't understand the background of where this man came from, but nonetheless, the authoritative teaching of Jesus in this moment stirs something, strikes something, triggers something in this evil spirit who gets so agitated that he cries out, you are the Holy One. Are you here to destroy us? Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So here is Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, fresh off of his resisting the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, showing his power over the spiritual realm. That Jesus speaks and instantaneously this powerful being within this man is silenced. He says, come out, and immediately the Spirit leaves this individual. This is the kingdom of God on display, that in an instant, this poor man, possessed by a demon, is ripped from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. And we look at this, and there's a sense of awe, there's a sense of fear and trembling, and there's a sense of, if we're honest in our modern Western culture, there's a sense of, of discomfort at hearing about an evil spirit possessing somebody. And so we look at this, and it's the temptation we face oftentimes is to look at this as an antiquated idea. This may have happened with these people back then. They were probably used to these strange occurrences, but we're not used to this. This is weird. But do you understand that this is the exact same thing that happens when Jesus enters our life? I mean, maybe the drama of possession isn't involved in that, but do you understand what it is to not know Christ? Because John, in his epistle, writes that one who lives in habitual, unrepentant sin is the son of the devil. And maybe you don't have a spirit possessing you, but that for all intents and purposes, you belong to a kingdom of darkness. That there's a spiritual battle, a spiritual war going on, and that before Christ's intervention in your life, you were not neutral in that battle, but you were actively warring against him. A soldier in the kingdom of darkness. 
But John in that epistle goes on to say, but Jesus came to destroy the devil's activities. And this is, this is what Jesus does when he enters our life. He stakes his claim. And the evil spirit knew this. That's why his question was, did you come to destroy us? He knew what the score was. He knew what was about to happen. But Jesus says to us in the moment when he steps into our life, when he stakes his claim, in that, in that moment what happens is he delivers us from the rule of the evil one, from the domain of darkness, and he delivers us to the domain of the light. He says, you are now a part of my kingdom. Unless we look at this uh, with, with a kind of dismissive attitude, pretending that this is an antiquated notion of an antiquated, unsophisticated people, look at the response of the people who actually witnessed this. Verse 27, and they were all amazed. This was unlike anything they had ever seen. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. As of course it would. The name of Jesus begins to be spoken by every mouth in that region. Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now notice the shift that just happened. When we think of miracles of Jesus, we tend to think of things like Jesus relieving people or releasing, rather, spirits from people. We think of healing. We think of all of the miraculous gifts. But in this story, what's, what's unique is the nature of the healing. We're not told that Simon's mother was on death's door. We're not told that she was about to pass. We're not told that she was in horrible pain. We're told that they walked in and she had a fever. Ordinarily, we think of Jesus' miracles being something that were done to prove to the masses his deity, and certainly that was an element of what those miracles accomplished. But here, in this rather intimate moment, we find Jesus with his friends. And Simon's mother is sick with a fever, and not only does Jesus have authority over spirits as we just witnessed, but here in this moment we find out that he has authority over the physical world. That yes, Jesus is a king who is coming to bring freedom and salvation and forgiveness and redemption to a lost and broken people. But that very same king also had a desire to set right all of the things that were broken by sin. That he cared so much, not only for the whole of humanity, but also for the specific individual that he brought healing to his friend's mother. See, this is Jesus caring not only about the extraordinary but about the ordinary. That in addition to the deepest needs of our soul being tended to by Christ, he also cares about our everyday needs. And this is vital for us because it's in those everyday needs that we live. How often is our tendency to put God up on the shelf until there's a moment of crisis. The foxhole conversion of your life. Where in a moment of panic, grief-stricken and broken, you call out for intervention. And right in the middle of that, God is saying, I've been here all along. 
that I don't just care about the moments of crisis. I care about all of those everyday little moments. I mean, I'm struck when I, struck when I think about this um, in, in talking to my son sometimes because my son, um, my, my oldest son, um, he's got a very active mind. He's, uh, he's got a very dramatic personality. And so he'll come home and he'll kind of share some of the things that have gone on through the course of his week at school, his interactions with his friends. He'll share maybe about some drama that happened in a conflict between him, him and one of his friends. And as he's sharing that with me, he is as serious as he can be about the problems in his life. And the tendency of a parent might be in that moment to say, well, look, as an adult looking at your situation, I can tell you that in another few years, you're not going to care what another five-year-old said to you. But of course, that's not the response. Because in that moment, with what he's experiencing and what he's walking through, that is as serious and as real as life gets. And so because I care what his experiences are and because I care how he thinks about things, I want to tease those things out. I want to have conversations. I want to reassure him. I want to give him wisdom where I can give wisdom. I want to speak into those moments. And in the very same way, our tendency is to presume that God is disinterested with the everyday, the ordinary, the banal moments of our life. Why would God care about this little friction I'm having in my marriage or the, the, the brief moment, uh, outburst of anger that I had with my child? Why would he care about my job situation? Why would he care about what's going on with these little things? God cares about the big stuff. And in this moment, what we see about God is that he cares about us in those everyday little moments. That Jesus cares for us the same way that a loving father cares for his child. So this woman had a fever. There's no indication, again, that she's on death's door, but he cares for her and he heals her. And the reason that I love this picture is because my mind immediately goes back to that of David in Psalm chapter 56. David in that passage is under siege for his life. He's undergoing all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of panic. And and in those verses, he cries to God and he says, you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in a bottle. And it's that idea that when you're rolling over in the middle of the night, unable to fall asleep because there's something on your mind that God is well aware of what's happening in your life in that moment. And not only is he aware of it, but he cares about you in it. So much so that David describes it as God keeping your tears in a bottle, that God is so aware, nothing escapes his view, nothing escapes his influence. And immediately our mind then races to Jesus in Gethsemane weeping, crying out before the Father. In a moment of of emotional and psychological agony before his ultimate death on the cross. We think of Jesus weeping in John chapter 11 at the death of his friend Lazarus. That whatever you're experiencing in the everyday of your life, do you understand Jesus has experienced it, that he cares? that he responds, that he knows, that Jesus knows the way in which he's calling you. We can trust him because he knows the way. It's the reason we make our request known to him because he shows extraordinary care for their ordinary problems of our life. So Jesus walks into her room and in this gentle scene, he takes her by the hand and he helps her to her feet. And immediately it says the fever left her and she began to serve them. You know that feeling after you've had a really bad fever or flu where you just feel tired and achy and you have no motivation to do anything, you're listless, you've got 
He's got no desire to do anything but lay in bed. And this woman, in this moment, immediately begins to serve him. It's as if she says, oh, welcome to my home. Allow me to get you some food since you're here. I mean, she immediately starts playing the part of the gracious host. And I think even in that brief little sentence that she began to serve, I think there's a lesson for us. Because in this moment, we have a picture of divine domestic worship. Here's the reason that I use those words. I mean, this woman has just experienced miraculous healing, and she doesn't begin to go out and proclaim and preach and teach. She doesn't go write a book. She doesn't go and do anything that was of any far-reaching impact to anyone at that time. But her simple act of service to Jesus is recorded for us to read 2,000 years later. I remember a couple years ago going to the Billy Graham um, Library in North Carolina, and as you walk through um, with the tour guides, they they have one room that's set up to look like um, Billy and Ruth Graham's house, where you can actually kind of see a replica of their house and the different things that they had. And I remember being struck by one particular sign um, that was posted in Ruth Graham's kitchen. She had a sign made that said, divine service will be conducted here three times daily. And the reason I love that is because it's a, It's a proclamation and a reminder that even in the everyday ordinary service in which we participate, there is something divine happening. There's a worship that happens in that moment. I mean, don't ever think that your ordinary acts of service are meaningless to God. That he values your service primarily for its intention and its purpose and not its impact. Impact, that's his department. What he chooses to do with it, that's up to him. But generous service, that is our call. And in this woman's ordinary generous service, we find a recording of it 2,000 years later because so much was made of this simple act of worship. And so it's through this healing of Peter's mother that Jesus gave a picture of his coming kingdom where not only was he going to restore everything that was broken spiritually, but in a a kingdom where he cares so much for us that he ushers in a world where there is no sickness and no suffering and no tears. And let's hurry on through the remainder of the passage. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now word had begun to spread, and all through the region, people are hearing about this one named Jesus. I mean, do you understand that this whole story is given to us within the space of 24 hours? Jesus begins doing these acts, and just hours later, it says the whole city was gathered at the door. Everyone is coming with their problems. I have a family member who's sick. My mother-in-law broke her leg. My father, he hasn't hasn't been able to see right for years. Would you please heal him? And on top of that, people heard about what happened at the synagogue, and so they're bringing their sons and their daughters and their cousins and their friends, and they're going, this person needs help. They need to be relieved of the spiritual oppression and possession from which they're suffering. And so as Peter, or rather, as Jesus is holed up in this house, as he comes to the door, what you get is a picture of a sea of people. And as soon as Jesus heals one person, it's as if there's five more people taking their place. This crowd is gathered because they marvel at his ability and at his power. They're awestruck at what they see in this man Jesus but there is no indication that they understand what it is to follow him. 
See, they didn't come to Jesus for who he was. They came to him for what he could give them. And the question that we have to answer in our lives is the very same question that would have faced those who were gathered there that day. Do you just want Jesus as gift giver? Do you just want him as miracle worker? Or do you want him as savior? And before you answer the question, consider with sincerity of heart everything that goes along with that. Because if you say savior, what it demands is your life. It demands that everything is changed. It demands that he takes over and calls the shots. But the reminder is that we can trust the one who has the power and knows the way. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So Jesus rises early the next morning while the disciples are still sleeping and and the crowds have dissipated, and he heads out into this place where he is all by himself, a desolate place. And we see this over and over and over again in Jesus' life, that he takes time to get away from the crowds and to get away from even his friends to be alone with his Father. He wanted solitude, and it's in this moment of solitude, this place of solitude, that he prays, not out of obligation, but a purposeful and lengthy time alone with his Father. And if you pay attention in the gospel recordings, you'll find that this happens over and over again, that every time there's a clamoring for Jesus' attention, that every time there's a crowd gathered together to hear him speak or to see him heal or to follow his movements, every time he has people's attention, rather than worrying selfishly about his own popularity, or rather than exhausting himself completely to the point where he tries to fix everyone else's issues, Inevitably, he takes time to be alone with his father. See, Jesus knew something that we often miss. That in the words of one author, you cannot give to others what you do not possess yourself. That the life we live as Christians, as believers, as ministers of the gospel, as proclaimers of the word, is not born of our own power, of our own discipline, or of our our own energy. That the life we live as believers has to be born out of the time that we spend with our Father. And it's in this moment where Jesus again rests in the perfect love of his Father, where he's reminded of the perfect plan of his Father. You remember when Jesus says, I came not to do my own will, but that of my Father? See, it's the Father's perfect plan that's being executed here. It's the Father's perfect love in which Jesus is resting. It's through the presence and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is having this time with his Father. And so the question that we need to consider coming out of that simple verse is if it was important for Jesus to have this time alone with his Father, how much more vital is it for us to have time with our Father? where we sit in solitude and silence in his presence, where we pour out our hearts and our requests, where we sit reminded of the goodness and the perfection of his will played out through the gospel. 
And look at what this leads him to then in verse 36. It leads him into an unexpected place. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And you can add your own interpretation as to how to read that line. That one's mine. I mean, you could read it that they were angry. Everyone's looking for you. Right, but whatever it was uh, that, that came across in the tone of what they were reading, what they were trying to communicate to him is, you've got a crowd of people who want to hear you speak who want to see you heal. There's work to be done. And imagine the disciples' excitement in this moment. They've just heard that the kingdom of God is at hand, and now they have seen firsthand what happens when Jesus preaches and speaks. They've seen what happens when Jesus casts out a demon. They've seen what happens when Jesus rests his hand on an elderly woman and her health is immediately restored. And now they've seen that probably dozens, if not hundreds of times over in the span of hours They are champing at the bit to get going. We have got to see this kingdom brought into fruition. We have got to take advantage. We've got to strike while the iron's hot. We've got to capitalize on this moment. And Jesus, certainly shocking them, says to them in verse 38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. For all the miracles, for all the healings, Jesus' purpose was not just to make life easier for the people he encountered. His purpose was to bring new life altogether. And Jesus, upon spending time with his father, decides my my work is no longer just here because my calling, the reason I came, is to preach. Jesus is implying that I love, he's saying I love setting right the brokenness caused by sin, but I want to go after its source. And the call that Jesus is giving in these miracles is follow me. Follow me because I'm what you've been looking for and I'm what you've been hoping for. Follow me not just because I bring physical healing, not just because I bring relief, not just because I bring freedom from spiritual oppression, but I came to bring you myself. Come to me for me. And there's a lesson in this for us as well. See, as believers, we should and ought care for the needs of our community, the needs of our region, the needs of our nation, the needs of our world. We are called rightly to acts of justice and mercy, to care for the needy, to be good stewards with the things that God has provided and given to us. We find that in James chapter two, where he says, if a brother is poorly clothed and is, and is hungry, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but you give him nothing, to make him warm or or to give him the comfort of food, what good is that? So certainly that is a part of our calling as an expression of the transformative work of the gospel in our lives. But understand this, everything we do as believers must be done out of a desire to demonstrate that transforming power of the gospel. That the gospel has to be what we proclaim and put our hope in. So John Calvin said it this way, he said, miracles are the appendages 
of the Word of God. And it's easy for us, especially within a culture that grows ever increasingly more critical of Christianity, of our doctrines, of our beliefs, of the things that we proclaim and hold to, it is easy for Christians then to begin to care more about the surface needs at the expense of the root need. And when that exchange is made, it is the gospel that is lost. So as we look back on denominations that have walked away from the gospel, but continue to do good deeds, in a very real way are doing good and practical deeds. Understand that what has been lost in that moment is the purpose of the church. Not the church holistically, but of the local church, the local expression of the church. See, local churches lose their meaning when they lose their message. Local assemblies like ours are the ground war for the kingdom. The bodies through which disciples are made, through which the gospel is proclaimed, and through which lives, according to that gospel, are vastly transformed. And that is what Jesus is insisting must be kept central. The message that he brought was that the king had arrived and the long road to the cross was going to be saturated with evidences of his kingship. And so into this moment where the disciples are wondering, why in the world would you leave this place? Look at what we've accomplished. I mean, they are riding high. They are excited and passionate. They're happy to be there. They can't believe that they get to be the ones who walk with Jesus and see him perform miracles and get to hear his teaching, get to see his hand of power go forward. But what they had no realization was going to happen is that the path that they were on was going to lead them through incredibly dark times. I mean, what we know historically is that all 12 of those disciples, aside from Judas who hung himself, they were all martyred. I mean, Peter, according to, to history, was crucified upside down on a cross. Disciples were stoned. They were burned alive. The only one of those original disciples who made it out alive was John, and the only reason he was alive is because they tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, and somehow he lived. And they were so freaked out that this guy was still alive that they exiled him for the rest of his life to Patmos. They had no clue that was coming. But Jesus, in his generosity and in his providence, gives them these moments as touchstones to his goodness. To remember that when it seems like all is lost and there is no hope, remember who has the power of life and death. Remember who has the power over the spiritual and the physical. Remember who is the one who, through his words, casts out demons and through his touch, brings healing and restoration and life new. And us, we need that same reminder that not only does Jesus have the power, but he knows the way. That long before Jesus called those disciples out of their boat, he had left the comfort of his father's home. That long before he told, 
told the, de- the, de- the demons to leave this man's body. He had walked through the temptation in the wilderness that he knew whereof he spoke. And because he has the power and because he knows the way, we can follow him in confidence. What an amazing, amazing promise. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this text. I thank you for a text that, at least for me, Lord, on first reading seems so straightforward and so simple and upon further examination is so rich with things for us to learn, things that we could spend weeks learning. God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit gives us revelation, insight into your word. I thank you that you make it alive to our dead hearts. I thank you. I thank you that the one who spoke with the authority of the creator also knows the way in which he's leading us. That you are at once so incredibly powerful as to speak and to silence demons and so incredibly personal that you would deign to walk into an elderly woman's home hold her hand and bring healing. We thank you that we can trust you. God, I pray that you would do the work of convincing us to believe when we have doubts, to trust when we're unsure. And God, in the midst, in the midst of our caring about the physical needs of those around us, Lord, help us to be ever mindful of the truth that the gospel, first and foremost, is the thing that does the work of transformation in lives and hearts. That our good deeds, our generosity, our care for the poor, our good stewardship, that all of those things are just expressions of the gospel. They're just demonstrations of the way that our lives have been changed through your word. And God, we pray all of this so that ultimately you can receive the glory for what is rightfully yours. We pray you would bring glory to yourself in this morning. It's in your most beautiful name that we pray. Amen.